Football Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm joined by Tom and Paul to rake through the latest media law headlines for you. We'll be discussing Rachel Riley's libel victory, Piers Corbyn's arrest and how free speech relates to employment in the context of a barrister, John Holbrook, who has been expelled from chambers following an offensive tweet. But of course, it being the 15th of February 2021 when we record this, we will have to start with the Duchess of Sussex. Meghan Markle last week obtained summary judgment in her privacy case against the Daily Mail for the publication of extracts from a letter sent to her estranged father in 2019. The disclosures were described in the judgment as manifestly excessive and hence unlawful. Mr Justice Warby also found that Miss Markle's copyright was infringed by five articles which were included in extracts from the letter. He stated that this is not one of those rare cases where freedom of expression trumps copyright. There is no basis on which the court could conclude that, although the copying was not fair dealing, the public interest required the copyright to be overridden. The trial will go ahead on limited parts of the copyright claim, as the male's lawyers have claimed that authorship of the letter is not solely Ms Markle's, but she potentially shared it with Jason North, a communications secretary. Justice Warby has described the male's factual and legal case on the authorship issue as occupying the shadow land between improbability and unreality, but said that it was not fanciful and thus the law allowed for it to be tested at trial. Paul, I know you watch the virtual oral submissions. Does this come as a surprise to you? Uh, No, it didn't, based on the uh, pleadings. Um, The... Uh, These proceedings have been incredibly uh, frustrating to watch uh, from a distance because uh, from day one, it was apparent that the Daily Mail didn't have any kind of case at all. Uh, There was nothing in the uh, defence that could possibly uh, explain or excuse um, their actions. Now, succeeding at a summary judgment application is, of course, um, difficult. Uh, It's not easily done because the the test is quite high. Um, The test essentially is, um, even if uh, you were able to prove at trial that these things were true, that you're saying in the defence, still it wouldn't amount to a sufficient defence to uh, outweigh uh, the claim. It was interesting in the summary judgment hearing, though, because the Daily Mail's lawyers kept banging on about the same point, really, that that um, summary judgment applications, uh, or successful summary judgment applications, are incredibly rare, and therefore uh, the judge shouldn't shouldn't uh, award uh, summary judgment. Now, that is of course true that. Uh, summary judgment uh, decisions in favour of the claimant are rare. However, it's also rare to have a defence filed that is as incredibly bad as the Daily Mail's defence was. And so this was just yet more obfuscating uh, by the defendants. They'd never had a claim at all And they seem to think that they could just sort of obscure that deficiency um, in their legal position by making noise, making lots of noise about irrelevant things. Uh, It was a bit like uh, listening to Donald Trump's defence lawyers uh, during um, the uh, recent hearing in the Capitol building. It was long, it was noisy, 
but it was entirely devoid of content. Do you think the comments made by Warby about the um, lack of substance in the copyright claim going forward indicates where that judgment will go? Uh, yes, I think it does. I think it also puts the defendants on notice that they're going to get hammered on costs. Uh, that by prolonging this, uh, these proceedings for as long as they have, in circumstances where they have absolutely no case whatsoever, um, they are going to have to pay, I would hope, the full amount uh, that uh, Meghan Markle's um, team have, have incurred. Um, because the whole thing has been farcical. It's been a complete waste of everybody's time. It's been a complete waste of court time. And I hope they're ordered to pay the full amount of the costs um, that uh, that she has incurred. Uh, the other ridiculous thing about it is, even if she wasn't the sole author of the letter, um, this is just a sort of minor point of who was entitled to bring the action. All she needs to do is to join in the other person who has copyright in this, um, and she'll win. So it's still not a defence. Mm. I've been reading as well a lot of commentary on this over the weekend. It said that, well, this, the people who are defending the press here, saying that this Jason North shows that she did, in fact, intend for this letter to be published. And I think it's also worth just mentioning that that would be quite standard practice to run things through a communication secretary when you are in a position that's very public. So um, if there are any listeners who've potentially read some of those comments, that's worth thinking about. I really struggle with this idea that uh, she had somehow waived her, her expectations of privacy uh, because she got someone else to read the letter first. Um, she's in a position where she has a team behind her who uh, are excellent uh, writers and thinkers in their, in their own right, um, why wouldn't she ask them to cast an eye over a, a letter that she was intending to send um, to her father um, when she, she has this resource available to her? I mean, the ridiculous thing about all of this is we all get other people to check our work uh, before we um, uh, before we send sensitive uh, information uh, to others. This is just standard practice. It doesn't mean that we're doing it because we're intending for the thing to be published. It means that we're trying to put the letter, the substance of the letter, in its best possible form. Tom, do you have anything to add to this? Well, just uh, I think a couple of points, really. Um, the first is that I think that this case puts a kind of line in the sand for... Um, publishers like the Daily Mail who have been trying it on for a number of years now and defending claims that really have not been defensible um, just to try to drag out proceedings so far as I can see and this is an extreme example and the court has squashed it um, and I think when you put this alongside the Supreme Court's decision in PJS which was also scathing of the uh, defence advanced by um, the defendant newspaper in, in, in that case. Um, I think the courts are now quite visibly starting to, perhaps, and not before time, 
uh, get tough with media defendants. Uh, Mr. Justice Warby, in this case, um, endorsed defense count, uh, claimant counsel's um, characterization of the copyright defense as utterly fanciful, um, which is a point that, of course, um, we made uh, on this podcast when we looked at the pleadings uh, some months ago and we saw that defense that was drafted. The second point that I have about the case is a, a more of a methodological one, really, in that um, uh, it's it's one of the last, might be the last, I don't know exactly what the schedule is, but certainly one of the last judgments that Mr. Justice Warby will give before um, moving up to the Court of Appeal in the spring. Um, and, and, and I think it's a, a judgment that's emblematic of his legacy on the High Court bench. Um, he's shown over uh, the years of his time in the High Court himself to be a judge that deals very, very well, very consistently with matters of detail and context. He shows the kind of sensitivity to context that I think was originally envisaged when uh, in the early misuse of private information cases, the uh, House of Lords um, talked about the need for an intense focus on the specific facts of the cases. Um, he's shown that in his decisions on privacy and defamation, um, or when he gave judgment in Le Show, a uh, judgment that ultimately ended up being affirmed by the Supreme Court. Again, we saw this uh, detailed attention to the context within which the case arose and the relevant legislation um, uh, arose. Um, and I think this case, really, this 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 one from the Duchess of Sussex, um, shows that uh, at its uh, at, at, at its finest, because um, despite it being uh, an, a pretty obvious case for summary judgment, even though those are rare, I think we're all agreed this was a case that obviously deserved it. Um, the judge still treated it incredibly seriously and took the case apart in minute detail, um, which I think renders the judgment unimpeachable. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think that's very important. This is a judge who does not deal in abstraction or generalizations. Um, and it's going to be, I think really interesting to see what impact he has on the jurisprudence of the Court of Appeal, um, because that as an approach, I think will be very welcome at the appellate level. Can I can I just make a final point about this? Um, just picking on what Tom said about this being a line in the sand. Um, this this case and the way that the Daily Mail has conducted itself. Uh, suggests to me the same kind of arrogance has crept back into uh, media reporting that we witnessed prior to the Leveson inquiry. Now, we were told in the aftermath of the Leveson inquiry that newspapers had learnt their lessons and they wouldn't be repeating the same kind of res um, mistakes again in the future, that they acknowledged they had done wrong, but they said that, that the lesson was learnt and there was no need for compulsory 
meaningful press regulation uh, to come into place. I don't think that lesson, I didn't think at the time that the lesson would be learnt. I think a case like this demonstrates that it hasn't. What we need to remember is that this is not a one-off circumstance or set of circumstances. Um, I think it's brilliant that uh, Meghan and Harry have taken uh, the uh, Associated Newspapers to court over this, but we have to remember that they are in the fortunate position where they are able to do so. They have the financial means available to them uh, to do that. My concern is that we don't recognise enough that newspapers continue to interfere with the private lives of others in a manifestly excessive and disproportionate way every single day. And the reason why we don't see more of this, these type of actions, is because of the nature of the people that uh, are being picked on. The the nature of their circumstances precludes this kind of action. This is why we need mandatory, meaningful press regulation, and we need it now. Because unless and until that takes place, we are going to keep seeing outrageous invasions of privacy like this case. Mm. And I think, you know, recently there's also been that that big reckoning the press are claiming they're having with themselves and their own behaviour with the Britney Spears documentary that's just come out. And there's been a lot over the weekend about how the tabloids just completely took her apart. And they've been apologising, saying, oh, we've learned we're not the same as we were 10 years ago. But this does just show, you know, nothing has changed. What I wonder, though, is what precedent does this actually set for people who are hounded by the press but don't have the financial means of the Duchess of Sussex to actually bring a claim? Is this a kind of case that's, you know, seems like it's beneficial for all. I know the Meghan Markle herself claimed on her Instagram story when she announced this judgment that she said this was a victory for everyone. Is it a victory for everyone? Uh, Well, yes and no. Yes, um, it's a victory for everyone in in the sense that uh, the judgment was so emphatic uh, as Tom said, prior to PEGS, I think there was uh, a problem with um, misuse of private information jurisprudence in that it was too ambiguous on the question of public interest. I think it was too deferential uh, to the press. Um, I hope that PJS signals are tightening up of that, uh, such that um, uh, these sort of uh, spurious public interest claims won't be accepted. And I think um, uh, the Duchess of Sussex case represents uh, a sort of extension uh, of that. Um, However, uh, no, I don't think it does help uh, others that find themselves without the financial means to pursue this kind of claim because, look, this was not a difficult case. This was a straightforward uh, case so straightforward that summary judgment uh, could be uh, applied. But the Sussexes, I'm sure, have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds just to get to this point. And the uh, difference between the costs they've spent and the costs that they will recover 
uh, may well be eaten up entirely by uh, the damages award. And of course, I don't expect for a moment that the Sussexes will keep the damages award. I'm sure they will gift it to charity. Um, but even so, this is costly uh, to do this. Let's move on then to another claimant friendly ruling that we've seen in recent weeks. And that is uh, Rachel Riley, the countdown mathematician who successfully obtained strikeouts uh, for the blogger Michael Sivia's defence in her online harassment libel claim. This incident stemmed from a Twitter exchange that Miss Riley had with a 16 year old girl in 2019 about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. The exchange was, to use the judge's words, measured and civil and a rational and respectful exchange of views. Mr. Sivia accused Miss Riley of bullying the minor on his blog, um, allegations which Mrs. Justice Collins Rice stated verges on the perverse. The defence of truth was struck out and honest opinion and publication on a matter of public interest fell with it. It's a nice example of libel law on Twitter, isn't it? We don't have many of those beyond that is there much more to talk about this case um i don't actually think so no i mean it seems to me to be pretty straightforward um these sorts of incidents where you have um individuals taking opposite sides uh, of a debate in relation to anti-semitism and the labor party um are highly emotive and we've seen over the last few years that there are very strong feelings on both sides of that debate. Um, and often tensions run high and Twitter is the kind of place where those tensions can boil over. It seems in the discussion that uh, Rachel Riley and this uh, teenager had, those tensions didn't quite boil over into outright nastiness, but instead... Um, uh, resulted in a debate in reasonably civil, reasonably measured terms. The teenager engaged Rachel Riley in a debate and um, Rachel Riley responded. Um, and the judge is clearly of the view that the manner of Rachel Riley's response came nowhere near the standard that's been suggested by the defendant, defendant in this case uh, came nowhere near to uh, encouraging harassment and abuse of um, the teenager. Uh, and if the judge is of that view, then striking out the defense of truth is absolutely appropriate. Um, so um, I, I think this case generates headlines because of the subject matter of the original debate, but... Uh, it seems to me to be an example of libel law working as it is meant to. Oh, yeah. Although uh, you say that, Tom, but I'm going to ask a question that I don't know the answer to, which is always dangerous. Uh, you know, just ask David Cameron. But how did how did Rachel Riley get past the Section One uh, test? What was the serious harm here? Um, allegation that she encouraged. The online abuse of a teenager seems to me to be pretty serious. I don't, I don't recall how many uh, hits this blog post got. Um, I'm not sure it's been reported, but um, I am enough. It seems um, to have got past section one. Does one does one have to get past section one in order to have the defence struck out anyway? Um, because section one, they tend to rule on not in preliminary hearings, but later in the proceedings. 
So it may well be that Rich um, Riley didn't need to get past Section 1 at this point. There's a kind of oddity about the point at which the courts tend to deal with Section 1, and they don't always deal with it in uh, the preliminary hearings on meaning. If more evidence is going to be required, they'll wait for a fuller hearing where the evidence can be uh, considered. So it was my understanding uh, post the show, but it may well be I've completely misunderstood uh, what the show was getting at. But it was my understanding that actually a preliminary hearing on serious harm uh, would become, if it hadn't become already, the norm going forward, such that um, all proceedings um, had to pass that essential threshold before questions about defences or anything else uh, would be considered. I think that's what we expected, but the practice that the courts have developed since, I've read a couple of posts on this on Inform, uh, the Media Law blog, um, a practice that's developed um, in subsequent cases has been that uh, it may not always be appropriate to try to deal with serious harm at the preliminary stage if what needs to be proven if the extraneous evidence to be introduced is substantial mm. then the courts may prefer to leave to simply decide on the old common law question of whether the uh, statement is prima facie defamatory yeah and then have an evidentiary hearing to determine um, the serious harm threshold and whether that's been passed, and that could simply be rolled into the trial. So it seems to me that that is increasingly what's happening because the main purpose of the Section 1 reforms was to try to cut costs and to have an extended preliminary hearing would not do that. Okay, that's right. I just feel like... it's. I think it's methodologically strange... Yeah. To do it that way, because intuitively you would think that it should be determined alongside meaning. And for a long time, I assumed that that is what the courts would do, because it looked like the right thing for the courts to do. And I told all my students, this is what the courts will do, because um, it's the only thing that made any sense. But it seems that um, considerations of time and cost as part of the case management protest are in some cases militating against that. See, I, f I find that really strange because I, I would have thought, well, I feel like we're slipping back into a kind of Thornton, uh, Jamil uh, approach, which I thought had been expressly ruled out in the show. Um, and I would have thought in terms of proportionality, if you can't establish serious harm, what's the point of going all the way to trial to then show that you can't establish serious harm? Um, otherwise, we seem to re be reverting back to the principle that a defamatory comment is actionable per se. Yeah, and we're back to the position that we've seen on the Defamation Act since its inception, that um, the courts have been interpreting it in pretty much the way that Parliament intended. The problem is it's just not a terribly good piece of legislation. Uh-huh, yeah. I'm going to move on. On just speaking of um, you know past case law and the precedents that it sets here, we had a question about Piers Corbyn, who is the brother of the former Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who was arrested at the start of February on suspicion of malicious communications and public nuisance. 
The Metropolitan Police are investigating a leaflet which contains material that compared the COVID-19 vaccination programme to the Holocaust, which uh, Piers, Piers Morgan is suspected to be involved in. Louise Tickle asked why it was okay to report this arrest when Cliff Richards set a precedent that the media may not normally report on arrests or police investigations until charge. Do we have an answer for her? Sure. Uh, The answer is, uh, legally speaking, it's not okay, but the newspaper did it anyway. Um, In exactly the same way as it's not okay for the newspaper to publish Meghan Markle's letter to her father, but they did it anyway. Um, What this really shows is that when you have uh, pro-media commentators coming out in the aftermath of cases like uh, Sir Cliff Richard's case and saying, oh, setting a precedent that uh, individuals have effectively pre-charge anonymity in criminal proceedings uh, will put a terrible chilling effect on the media who will not be able to report anything and will practice defensively. Um, That's just not true. The media will not practice defensively. They'll continue to try it on if they think that they might be able to get away with it. And even if they don't, um, they'll still uh, take a pop at anyone who uh, they consider to be thoroughly undesirable, Um, which clearly is how they feel about uh, Piers Corbyn and probably with very good reason. So um, legally speaking, they're probably not on terribly safe ground here, but they don't care. Right, before we finish today, there's one more thing I want to touch on. I know that this is going to be a, could be a very long discussion, so we'll, we'll keep it brief and introductory. But um, this is the expulsion of John Holbrook from Cornerstone Barristers Chambers after a tweet, which he made, he claims he made in a personal capacity on his political accounts. Uh, the tweet was in response to a promotional video from the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which featured the parents of Ruby Williams, who was a schoolgirl that challenged a school uniform policy that required her to cut her Afro hair. The video stated that this was a case of racial discrimination, and Holbrook responded by tweeting that, and I quote, the Equality Act undermines school discipline by empowering the stroppy teenager of colour. The offending tweet caused quite a shake-up at the English and Wales Bar. It flies in the face of one of the core duties of the Bar Standards Board Code of Conduct, which prohibits practitioners from behaving in a way which is likely to diminish the trust and confidence which the public places in your profession. The tweet played into well-established racist tropes about individuals from BAME backgrounds, and commentators have noted that the use of the word stroppy connotes uppity and resonates with know your place. The tweet also inferred that Miss Williams made a frivolous, impulsive and unfounded complaint against her school, which was not due to any form of real discrimination. This completely negates the fact that the school did settle and it instantly accuses the non-white teenager of playing the race card rather than mounting challenges based on legitimate complaints. Holbrook's tweet does a lot to undermine the efforts that have been made at the bar to show that this is a profession that does not discriminate. And the complaints that have been mounted against him are grounded in the fact that the right to freedom of expression comes with a responsibility. Holbrook has since written in the critique and conservative women defending his tweet and launching his new career as a defender of free speech. He claims in those essays that he has been cancelled and promises he will dedicate the rest of his professional life to challenging the woke. He claims that cancel culture is a straitjacket on the free expression of ideas. 
we've spoken about cancel culture on the podcast before. Tom and Paul, I wonder, you know, does he have a point here? And if not, why not? Yes, Colette. As you uh, anticipated, I think this is a, a big question and one that we certainly don't have time to cover uh, very briefly in a newscast. Uh, there is a free speech uh, dynamic here, and that's in relation to the employment context. Uh, in circumstances where an employer uh, dismisses an employee, for example, for speech that the employer doesn't like, um, English and Welsh law doesn't do much to even recognise the existence of a, a free speech right in these circumstances, let alone protect it. So there is something to be said there. However, free speech uh, is not a trump card. And I'm afraid this stroppy barrister playing the trump card uh, in uh, of free speech in these circumstances uh, is, of course, to be expected. Um, but uh, it's fairly empty uh, in these circumstances. Uh, because when we actually delve into what the free speech dynamic looks like here, uh, I'm afraid th there isn't much to be said. Now, it's not because uh, his speech is uh, anti-liberal. Uh, it's not because his speech makes him look like uh, an unsympathetic idiot. Um, it's because his chambers, where he works... Uh, are entitled to decide who they want to associate with and who they want to be part of those chambers. Uh, there is a commercial aspect to this as well, um, as well as a, a human aspect. Uh, the human aspect is, of course, do we want to work with someone like this? Uh, and the commercial aspect is the impact that being associated with this kind of person uh, has on the income of the chambers. And uh, they are entitled to decide in the way that they did uh, without much damage to uh, any sort of free speech um, right. Tom, any point here on the, the kind of cancel culture element? Sure, the man hasn't been cancelled. Um, he's gone out and written an article about his experience in a conservative web-based publication um, and has thus uh, increased his audience and written at length this ranty, nonsensical piece which in which he uh, says, first of all, that he's been cancelled, um, then says reiterates his attack on uh, this uh, now woman, former teenager that he identified as a stroppy teenager of colour, um, reiterates his attack on her by saying that the school uniform policy in question um, had permitted her to uh, wear her hair at a reasonable length. And actually what he ends up quoting is the uh, newer version of the school uniform policy that was brought in after her case, not the one as it applied to her at the time. So his facts aren't right. Um, then having said that he's been cancelled, he then says he will not be silenced and will continue to speak up on matters of free speech. So he clearly does not actually think he's been cancelled at all because he recognises he has a platform to do this and will continue to do it and finishes off for reasons that cannot fathom at all with an attack on the trans community. Um, I, 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 
I, I find it very, very difficult to see anything worthy of comment in this case at all. A man said a thing that was, on the face of it, uh, racially offensive. His fellow self-employed barristers decided they no longer wished to share chambers with him, so they told him to get out. Uh, and uh, he's gotten out, and he's, he's, he's upset about it. Um, but this is not this is not cancel culture. Um, the man has not been cancelled. Paul, any final comments? Yeah, I I just struggle with the whole sort of free speech uh, dynamic here and the use of uh, free speech uh, as a as a sort of explanation or a defence of of what he's done. Um, I, I really don't understand what it is people want uh, when they uh, when they use free speech in these terms. I mean, he's sort of attacking. He says it's now his mission to attack the woke. I mean, God knows what that means. Uh, it's certainly not noble or laudable or anything like that. Um, he doesn't come across very well at all. He certainly doesn't come across as a sympathetic uh, character. But but what is it that uh, these people uh, want when they talk about their attack on free speech, given that, uh, as Tom has said, um, he made his statement. His statement got a lot of attention. What what was it he was expecting um, would happen when he, he attacked a, a young woman? Um, I, I, I just don't understand what, what he thinks would, would come of this uh, or what he thinks he's trying to prove now uh, by attacking her and anyone who agrees with her. I mean, this whole, oh, liberals are shutting down free speech nonsense is incredible. Go on Twitter, look at what's been said. No one's shutting down uh, these people. Um, there's one. There's loads of them, um, and their their message, um, which is essentially discriminatory, is available on lots of different channels. So what's the problem here? It's also showing scant regard for freedom of expression um, in his treatment of this young woman. Because, of course, what she had wished to do was to attend her school and in so doing to um, wear her hair in a way that was culturally uh, appropriate and uh, presumably in a way that is physically comfortable. And both of those are aspects of freedom of expression. And he seems to think nothing of her right to freedom of expression whilst attending a public institution. And schools are required to protect the freedom of expression uh, of their pupils because they are public bodies and bound by the Human Rights Act. He thinks nothing of her right to freedom of expression, uh, her right to freedom of thought and conscience, and presumably thinks no better of the rights of uh uh, right freedom to manifest religion that we've seen in a whole bunch of cases where uh, Muslim school children's desire to wear traditional uh, Muslim dress has conflicted with school uniform policies. He says that this young uh, woman um, was was uh, in essence was undermining the school uniforms policy, and that just flies in the face of sensible liberal thinking. The school uniforms policy that failed to take account of genuine cultural, racial differences, the physical differences that children from black backgrounds whose hair naturally grows in that Afro style uh, 
um, the physical differences uh, that, that need to be respected and allowance needs to be made for in public schools. It is those sorts of uniform policies that fail to take account of those differences that are undermining the pupils. And that is the point. That is the position that the law takes. That is the position that the Human Rights Act takes. That is the position that the Equality Act takes. And that is the position that any barrister worth their salt should be taking if they uh, have, for some reason, developed overnight a desire to speak out on a mm. case that they have nothing to do with. And I think, yeah, it comes down, you know, as you, you've said, Tom, it's that understanding that this policy was written by white people it's enforced by white people and so going on to then say that actually it was entirely reasonable completely misses the the point of the, well yes yeah, so when was actually mounted when 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 reasonable length afro is something that is determined um by a, a white person looking at a black child and going, I don't think your Afro is of a reasonable length. Uh, the, the world's gone mad. Mm. You have to have a degree of relativism, relativism here. Um, uh, but it, look, there's, there's so much that I could and, and would say, uh, you know, on the public law podcast, if one existed, about school uniforms and the way that school uniforms discriminate day in, day out against pupils from all manner of backgrounds and how they are really a terrible driver of inequality of rights and standards. So much I could say on it, but it's not media law, so I'm not going to. It's not for this podcast, but, you know, one day. Um, but this is not cancel culture. This has not been cancelled, and depressingly, I don't think yeah. it's going to be cancelled. Well, I think then we've drawn out all of the media law aspects to this. Um, and so I think that's a good place to conclude this episode. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And as ever, please follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast. And we'll be back again soon. Bye.